Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and somebody from our Frontlines team will hand you one. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures, please feel free to hold on to it and keep it. So the scripture reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then the king of David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, to Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called, then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given you to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of God. All right, well, next week we'll watch episode two. Um, as we are beginning a new series here at Church of the City, uh, focusing on the question, what is church? And many of us, whether we would admit it or not, come uh, to church gatherings or participate in churches, and we bring a whole lot, sometimes baggage, but sometimes we bring good things as well. But then there's others of us, and you're maybe sitting here and you've never participated in a church before. You have some ideas of what it is. Buildings sort of come to mind when you think church. Um, maybe religiosity comes to mind when you think of church. But we're going to ask the question, what is church? And we're going to look into the scriptures, uh, into the Bible to figure out what it is, and then very connected to uh, how we practice and live that out here at Church of the City. So we're going to find our root of why we do what we do in the scriptures, and then talk about how we practically apply it as it relates here over the next few weeks. So if you are not a follower of Jesus and there's a whole bunch of names that were listed in that video that completely went over your head, don't worry about that. Uh, we're so glad you're here and that you're going to be hopefully begin the journey with us here at Church of the City discovering more about Jesus. Well, there's a, a group in the States called the Barna uh, Group, and they just recently completed a study, and all of their research came out in a book called Good Faith. Uh, the subtitle of the book uh, is called uh, Good faith, being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. And in order to do the study, they interviewed thousands of U.S. adults. They interviewed a lot of leaders in uh, both Christian communities and other faith communities to ask a number of questions and sort of get a real pulse on 
on uh, religion in the United States. So just be aware, these are U.S. statistics and U.S. comments, but I think we could say that here in Canada, we'd be probably a little bit further along the journey than the U.S. might be. But this is what was said about church according to uh, U.S. American adults. Many essential Christian practices are now perceived to be extremist. While not majority opinions, millions of adults contend that behaviors such as donating money to religious causes, reading the Bible silently in public, and even attending church or volunteering are examples of religious extremism. They go on to say, what most concerns people about extremism is the public expression of religion when beliefs and practices enter the public square. For the most part, people think you can do whatever you want on Sunday mornings in your churches just as long as matters of faith don't spill out into society. Interesting. Right? And some of us would say, yeah, totally understand that, totally get that. I've, I've uh, understood that through relationships that I have with people that don't follow Jesus. But here's the, here's the problem with a bit of this thinking. Every single one of us bring a faith system to the table of the public square. Right? So you can be a Christian and have a worldview, a faith position, and you can be an atheist and you too have a faith position, a reason for believing the things that you do. And you engage in the public square with particular belief systems about how the world began, why things are so bad, why things are as bad as the way that they are, what's the reason, how, are we, how is everything going to get better? Every single person. So it's unfair to completely put people or religious people in this category because we all, in some way or another, in the public square, operate with a particular faith system. Now that said... I think many of us would be honest to say that on the street that you live, if you are a person that regularly participates in a church community, that you are extreme, right? I think of the people that live to the right of me, to the left of me, across from me, and in both directions, and many of these folks are not regularly participating in the life of a church community. And so, very much so, it would be extreme. But then the question is, why are we the way that we are if you're a follower of Jesus? Why do we gather as a church community? I mean, it's a nice day outside. There's many other things we could be doing at this time. Or why do we give time in the middle of our week to one another? So what is church? And as connected to that, why do we engage in it? So I hope you're here to enjoy this aspect of it and hopefully be challenged and so that we can begin living this out in community together. 2 Samuel 9, Michelle did a wonderful job reading that to us. Let's go back to it and we're going to go through line by line as we figure out, it seems maybe like an odd place to begin talking about what is the church in 2 Samuel 9, but I think the implications here are enormous and so go with me again to 2 Samuel 9. As I said, we'll go through line by line pick it apart and figure out what and how it applies to our lives for today. Begins like this. And David said, now already it begins with a backstory. And David, who's David? David at this point is the king of Israel. David is the king that followed King Saul, who was the first king of the nation of Israel. And Saul is no longer king. David is now the king. So introduction to David. David wrote a great portion of the Psalms, which are in the scriptures. Uh, David, as you maybe heard the story of David and Goliath, this is the same David. He is now king of Israel. And we read, and David said, is there still anyone left 
of the house of Saul. What he means is, is there anybody still alive who's part of the lineage of King Saul, the king that came prior to me, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, once again, we're introduced to a number of things here. Typically, in the lineage of kingship, someone would become king because their father was king. Immediately, we're introduced to a situation in which this is not the case. David is not part of the lineage of Saul. He is different. Jonathan, then, who we're introduced to, was Saul's son. Now, why this is culturally countercultural is that at this time, when a king would come into power, rather than showing kindness to the last king's family, as we're reading about here, they would try to kill them all. Why? Because they didn't want any threat upon their own throne, right? Who is going to be the one that could rebel and try to take my position? Well, probably the people that represent the past king, they are going to get maybe rebellious about the fact that they're not king anymore, and so they're going to try to come and take me out. David instead says, is there anybody still left of the household of Saul, the previous king, that I might show kindness to? If you have your Bible open, you can flip back. We're in 2 Samuel now, but you can go back to 1 Samuel 18, verse 3. Why did David feel like he needed to show kindness to Saul, and particularly to Jonathan? We read this in verse 3 of chapter 18. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. We're introduced here in 1 Samuel 18 to this relationship that Jonathan, the son of the present king at that time, had with David. And David would come and he would play uh, an instrument for Saul, and then David became good friends with Jonathan. And Saul, as many, some of us know the story, but not all of us, Saul became the first king of Israel, but he was a king that disobeyed God and did not please God. And so as a result, God said, okay, Saul, you have not lived as you were called to live, as I asked you to live as a king. And so instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to transfer the kingship of Israel to a king by the name of David, to a man named David. And David is already in relationship. And so then what we have through the following pages is this tension between Saul and David. Yet David has this relationship with Jonathan, the son. And here in this text, you read the details of like, Jonathan gave his robe and it's not like, hey, you need a cool robe. It's I identify that I am not going to be the next king. I identify that you are going to be the next king. That my father, yes, is the king. It's not going to come to me. It's going to go to somebody else. You know, some of us think of uh, Prince William and Kate. Did you know they're having a third? Woohoo! Big deal, right? But there's a lineage there, right? We think of that way. And this, it's completely skipping a family. It's going to a completely new family. It's going to David. And Jonathan recognizes this. And as a result, he creates and he enters into a covenant relationship with David. We then see further details about that, this covenant in 1 Samuel 20. So you can go with me there a few pages later. 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 to 17. This is what Jonathan says to David as they are about to part ways. He says, if I am still alive, because Jonathan believes that he is likely going to die, that the, the, the line of his, the kingship of his father, he will likely die as well. David is going to become the next king. He's asking for his life now to be spared. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Steadfast love here is a word that is hesed in the original. 
It is the kindness of God. Show me the kindness of the Lord. Because if you're to lean into simply the kindness of a human being, every kindness of a human being seems to have limitations. He says, the kindness of God is amazing. It's far-reaching. Show me the kindness of God. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the earth. So Jonathan is admitting, I'm not going to be the next king. But I would ask, David, that you would honor me, that you'd continue your covenant with me, and that my kids would be protected by you in the future. God will take care of your other enemies, but would you enter into a relationship in which you will protect me? Now, at the time, you've got to remember, this is risky in this culture. It's if I leave them alive, they could try to come and overthrow me. But David says, yes. Verse 16, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You can go down to verse 42. This is as they're departing. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. So now back to 2 Samuel 9. We read that David, he's now identified. He's the king. He has all power. He has all control. And he's remembering his relationship that he had with Jonathan, the son of Saul. Saul was his enemy. And he's now saying, I want to show kindness if there's anybody left of Jonathan's household. What he is doing, please hear me, is completely counter. And some would say ridiculous and maybe even stupid. Why would you honor your enemy's lineage, son's heritage? Because David says, there's been a covenant that I've made with Jonathan. And a covenant is forever. A covenant is not his contract. It will not break. It will go on forever. So what does he do? He tries to find out. Now there was a servant, this is verse 2, back to chapter 9, of the, of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, just to make sure, <laughs> I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul? Then I may show kindness of God to him. Once again, the word hesed, the kindness of God. Let's extend the kindness of God because if it's left upon my own kindness, I'm not going to be able to show that much kindness. Let's lean into the kindness of God. Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Emiel, at Lodabar. So servant is identified. His name is Ziba. He's aware of a son of Jonathan. And we read that he's crippled in his feet. Now I have a map here of where Lodabar was. So uh, you see kind of the central position here. In the, or it's not central on the map, but at the time it was known as a central area. We have Jerusalem here. And then if you follow the purple line up all the way to Beth Shen, and then on the, if you take the yellow line, you reach there to Lodabar. This is where it's identified where he is. David is over here in Jerusalem. And so he finds out, oh my goodness, way up to the north here is a son of Jonathan. And he is crippled. Now we ask the question, well, why is he crippled? Was he born that way? And actually, earlier in 2 Samuel, we'll find out why he is crippled. So if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. It says this, 
Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. What's the news? The news is that they're dead. They've been killed. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So, a couple of things, okay? We are now introduced to this man named Mephibosheth. We read the story at the time. Why is he fleeing? He's fleeing because now that Saul and Jonathan are dead, it's assumed that everyone that is part of the lineage of those men will also be killed. So there he's fleeing for his life. He doesn't want to be killed. And so in some ways we know that he's running, he's going into some sort of hiding. And in the process of going, he falls and becomes crippled. Now, in this culture, this would immediately mean that if he were to get any sort of kingship, that he would not be able to serve as a king in the north. He's lame. And not like not cool. Physically, he's lame. He can't walk now. Uh, in that culture, you've got to think of the ways that, that, that folks that have uh, physical disabilities are fortunate in, this, in the culture that we live in and at the time that we live in, in which there are a number of things that have been created to allow them various ways of moving around. This was at a time in a culture where they did not have many of those things. And so this man, he would have been a weight upon everyone else. He couldn't have gone and gotten an internet-based job. That wasn't created back then. He would have been a man that who would have been required in many ways to engage in physical labor is now no longer to do that. So I'm just trying to paint the picture of the sort of individual that Mephibosheth is. Verse 6, back to 2 Samuel 9. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid him homage. Why would he fall on his face? Well, one, he's the king. Two, you got to think of the story. He's like, I am a handicapped individual from your, the line of your enemies. Why would you bring me here? And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. Don't you love that? Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid him homage and said, what is your servant that you should regard for a dead dog such as I? You see the perspective that he has on himself? He's like, in comparison with you, I'm a dead dog. I am worthless. I have no value. I have no meaning in this life. Who would I be that you would want me to eat at your table? To be brought into your family? He's going to do it anyways, David is. Verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. Notice what he's doing. He's not saying, okay, just Mephibosheth, you're going to go and you're going to get the land. It's the physical land. You're going to go and get it. And I'm going to leave you to try to work out all the details of how it's going to be taken care of. He says, no, 
I'm going to make sure that Ziba is going to serve you as well as his servants so that you have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. Verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for eight, always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. If you think about it, as I've sort of painted the picture of the culture and the context, isn't what David did incredible? He didn't owe this crippled man anything, yet he honored a covenant that he made with Jonathan. Uh, Commentator and theologian Philip Riken writes this, What Mephibosheth received was tantamount through the grace of adoption. First, he was granted a royal pardon. You may send time before me. But more than that, by being given a place at the king's table, he practically became a member of the royal family. Now, at the time, it's it's not like at 5 o'clock they all called everyone together and had family dinner. Uh, it was generally the way that most of the king's son would have some of their own palaces within Jerusalem. And mo- many of those sons would also provide much of their own food at each of their tables by working their own land. Mephibosheth is participating in that just as any of David's sons would participate in that now. He's being welcomed. He's being given a palace, likely. He's being given servants to work for him so that he doesn't have to worry about that for the rest of his life. The kindness of God through David has been shown to Mephibosheth. Now you might be asking the question, well, what does this have to do with what is the church? Now, a couple details first. This was written, the timing-wise, this was a thousand years before Jesus. And why I tell you that is that I'm going to make some applications here to the life of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. But you need to hear me that the thread of the good news of Jesus runs through the entirety of the scriptures. So you ready for how it works? Do you ready? Yes. Good. Number one, Christians believe that God enters into a covenant relationship with us by adopting us as his children, just as David honors his covenant with Jonathan and adopts Mephibosheth into his care and protection. We read this in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6, about ourselves. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, some of you are parents. Um, My sons do not yet call me Abba, Father. But the language here is one of intimate relationship with your father. So we read what God does 
God the Father does through Jesus is that when we trust in him and we trust in his good news, he adopts us as his children. So now we have been included into the family of God. We are God's sons and daughters, and now we can relate to God as our father, a perfect father. Because when some of us hear the word father, we don't think good things. We think pain. We think abandonment. We read in the scriptures that God is a perfect father. And that he invites us now to relate to him as our daddy. You can call God daddy. You know, I'm at an age now where I've started to identify some of the hurts that I have growing up with my parents. And many of those hurts are not things that my parents intended upon me. It was the reality of them being broken individuals as I am a broken individual. But the amazing thing is that I have a heavenly father that I can go to that is perfect now. That I've been adopted into his family and that he is my dad. Secondly, God the Father pardons our sin and gives us an eternal inheritance by putting the weight of our sin on Jesus just as David does with Mephibosheth. We read Galatians 4 verse 7, a continuation of what we read before. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Christianity teaches that each of us have a stain, and the stain within us is sin, activity that goes against God's perfect and good design. Now, many people believe, well, just don't worry about that. Just live a happy and good life. There won't be any consequences for your bad decisions unless, of course, it's done in public, and then you really need to worry about it. Christianity says, no, we have an issue that's inside of us. And if there is a God, and if that God is perfect, then we're out of line with this perfect God. And God could decide, well, because you're not perfect and holy, I'm going to do away with you. But this loving father, kind God says, no, I want to be in relationship with you. And so to take the weight of your sin and, your par- and you need pardon, I'm going to send my son who will take that upon himself so that you can live free lives. So we don't have to worry about those consequences. And then we're, then, we're, then we're welcome. Now we're heirs, right? Part of the fact that we become sons and daughters of God is now you become an heir. Now some of you um, in your 50s and 60s, you maybe still have parents that are alive. And uh, some of you uh, are maybe thinking about the reality of when my parents pass away, uh, there's going to be an inheritance, and uh, it's not a, a joyful thought in any ways, at least probably for the majority of us. Uh, but for some of us, it's like, okay, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a reality of what's going to happen, right? So you think about inheritance. It's like, well, I'll get their house. I'll get probably their car. I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do with that. But there's going to be a financial reality that generally connects with the parent's death. All of us are like, why is this big guy being so morbid? The reason I'm being so morbid is to point out that we think about inheritances often as it relates to physical death. And the scriptures point to that we have a heavenly inheritance and an earthly inheritance. Our heavenly one is waiting for us that we will spend eternity with God in heaven, perfectly in his presence, void of pain, sin, suffering, and death. And in the now, we get the benefits of being his kids and having his Holy Spirit inside of us. That's our incredible inheritance that we are now given. 
And then the next reality that we read of this story is that through our adoption in Partum, we are welcome at the Father's table as David welcomes Mephibosheth to his table to partake in his daily blessings and provisions. The Father's table of communion, we participate in that. But I also love to see, like, if you think about the theology related to it, is now Jesus is our big brother. We're brothers and sisters with one another, and God's our Father. And we're at the table of our Father. And we're doing this life together, and we're engaging in difficult conversations. We're engaging in the realities of this new reality that we live in. And we're welcome to the Father's table because we're now declared innocent, we've been pardoned, and we've been invited. And then finally, we realize that Jesus becomes the cripple to save the cripple, just as David bears the weight of the crippled man to save the crippled man. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That everything that you've ever done that were outside what God desired for you has been taken care of. Everything that you currently are doing and everything that you will do, that you've been saved from those things. And Jesus takes all those things upon the weight of his shoulders, is nailed to the cross, goes to the grave, comes back three days later, and gives us new life, defeating the power of sin and death and Satan and demons so we can live forever with God. That's the best. Now, what does this mean for you and for me? Because you're like, wow, these are a lot of like theological things. So what does this mean for you and for me? Let's apply it. First implication is that the way that you and I are to relate to one another is as brothers and sisters. Now, you might be like, yeah, I've heard that before. No new thing. Okay, but if you think of church as a one time a week, hour and a half situation that you have to go to, and you're extreme for doing it, you might not see these people as your brothers and sisters. Because I don't say to my brother Aaron, okay, Aaron, I'll give you an hour and a half a week outside of that. Don't contact me. (laughs) You laugh because you know it's the truth. But as sometimes we think about church culture, we think of it in that way, right? We are brothers and sisters. Now, as that relates, we as a result, we bear the weight of one another's burdens and we extend grace constantly, Right? Some situations of family, uh, you, you, you very honestly need to physically remove yourself from them because of abuse or another situation. But by and large, the reality of family is not that once your sibling or your parent makes you really mad, you're like, okay, we'll see you later. I'm not going to deal with you anymore. It's like, no, we'll see you at family dinner again next week, and we'll probably exchange some text messages. We might even talk on the phone on the way, on the way throughout the week. Because... I'm not, I'm not giving up yet. I'm not giving up on you because we're family. And you bear the weight of one another's stuff. Like if, if my siblings need something, they call me. They say, hey, struggling with this decision, need a vehicle, can you help me out? Sure. Help you out. And kind of the unspoken reality is, why do they do that? Because I'm the brother. Because they're the sister. We bear the weight of one another's life, lives and we extend grace constantly that you made me mad, but I'll forgive you because you're my brother. 
This is how the Bible speaks about the church. That the church and its primary function and identity is as a family, as children to our Father God who has adopted us, and as brothers and sisters who bear one another's burdens and extend grace to one another constantly. If you had not, if you had, not had that experience, my apologies. If you want that experience, that's what we're going after at Church of the City in really intentional ways to say we are the family of God. And if we say we're family, then that would mean this. In good faith, uh, Kinnaman and Lyons write this as a result of, if this is how society looks towards us, here are some things that we need to change in order to engage the society in which we live. They say, our society feels the very real need for family, yet it seems that families are more comfortable than singles in the church. You can be a gift to same-sex attracted and other single people in your church by changing your everyday, ordinary rhythms to involve them. For families with children, it could mean inviting a single friend over for a weekly movie or pizza night, including them in a holiday get-togethers and bestow on them aunt and uncle honors for your children. I grew up that way with my parents' friends. Invite those without an an immediate nuclear family to experience the joys, hardships, and routine patterns of family life. They, in turn, will be a gift to you. You can take friendship out of the virtual and put it back in the real world, sharing the ups and downs of daily life with a sister or brother who sees past your filtered profile pictures and loves you anyway. Your children will have a trusted, godly adult other than you and your spouse to mentor, care for, and be a friend to them. This will not always be easy. Relationships never are. But it is a vision for church as first family. If we do not reconfigure our churches to be communities that welcome, support, and celebrate singleness, we are asking gay and straight brothers and sisters to do hard, lifelong work without the willingness to do so ourselves. I think in many ways that's prophetic. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters who bear the weight of one another's lives. And we extend grace constantly to one another. And if it's like, well, I'm sorry, but you are single and so you don't fit into our family. We'll see you later. It's no. You're in this and we are in this with you and we're going to do life together. I remember hearing a fantastic presentation by a single guy named Sam Alberry, And he said, he said, the things that my friends that have families find mundane, I take enormous joy in. He said, for example, my friends who have kids have to drop their kids off at school every day and they find it mundane and oh my goodness, it's just, we have to do it. He's like, I love driving my friends' kids to school because I get to participate in their lives. This is the church as family. Lastly, we follow the way of Jesus together under our Father with our big brother Jesus. We follow the way of Jesus together. And we do that as a family, as brothers and sisters. Now, there is a swath of people here this morning, and I don't know where this lands with all of you. Some of you might be like, well, it sounds sort of interesting, 
but that's not been my experience. Um, and if that's the case, we're trying here. We're, we're, we're saying we really desperately want to see one another as brothers and sisters. And one of the ways we do that is in the rhythms of a missional community. Now, some of you might be like, oh, missional community kind of sounds like a small group. And sometimes, but it's sort of a small group on steroids where we're constantly saying, how are you as a missional community being a family? How are you celebrating life together? For example, in our missional community, it was part of our covenant last year. I'm going to hopefully see if it's part of our covenant this year. The word of covenant, you might be like, what the heck is he talking about? Uh, stick around. Reason being, we've written to our family section that if Matt and Andrea need babysitting, that the others in our missional community would step in as babysitters for us whenever we needed it. Why? Because generally some of the first people that we call to do babysitting is, is our kids' grandparents. But if the brothers and sisters that are part of Church of the City are truly our brothers and sisters, then they should also be people we call and say, would you come babysit for us at no cost? <laughs> the best! <laughs> Families with kids right now are like, I need to get me one of them missional communities. <laughs> totally, you do. We went vacation, we vacationed together as a missional community this past year. We went camping together. I'm not a camper, but we all wanted to do it together. So I'm like, we'll do it. We try to celebrate each other's birthdays with one another. You know, you, you, you know someone's family and you go to their house and you open the fridge, right? We're trying to get to the point that when we host at our house, that anybody can walk and open the fridge and be like, here it is. Another one of our rhythms is that Matt and Andre, because they host, don't have to clean up after the dinner. So everyone now hopefully knows where all of our different dishes and things go in our house, right? So that it's not twice the work when I go back to my kitchen, right? That's what a family does. And you're listening to these things, you're like, yeah, that's what my immediate family maybe does. Imagine if your church family was doing that with you too. As we transition here to sing a few more songs, I want to invite you. Uh, we've created space here at the end of our gatherings for you to be prayed for or to pray, be prayed with. And we would invite you to come to the front. We have people here at the front that would love to pray with you. And you can come to the front if you've got something going on for you and you're like, I, need, I just need prayer in my life about this. If you've got something going on, you're like, this doesn't seem like a big deal, come to the front and get prayer. And it usually takes five seconds for your willingness to actually come to the front. If you are experiencing a physical ailment, we believe the Holy Spirit is good. And when we ask, he wants to heal us. And so if you'd like to come forward, we've seen people healed at Church of the City before in these sorts of environments. We'd love to invite you at the front. But this is your time and your experience, as I as well as well, is to respond to what we've heard today. To hear the good news and then respond to the good news. And if you are someone here and you've never trusted in the good news of Jesus before, that you've been pardoned, that you have a Father in heaven who loves you, that you have an inheritance, and that now you get a bunch of wacky brothers and sisters— I would invite you to believe that good news for the very first time. To tell the person that brought you about it, to tell myself about it, to fill the connection card and tell us about it. But we'd be loved to begin journeying this out with you as we are brothers and sisters together. Next week, we'll be talking about the realities of what does it mean to be missionaries in our culture? And is that part of what the church is? So we'll hope to see you again. But as we respond here, let's turn to Jesus. And if you'd like to have someone pray with you, please come to the front. We'd love to pray with you.